Well, the seven judgments of God, this is part three in our series, and um, please don't get too confused with the numbers, but this is part three in our series, and this is the judgment of the believer's works, part one. Okay, so we're going to take two weeks on the judgment of the believer's works. This is the third major judgment in scripture. Now, let me say this. All the judgments up to this point have to do with the past. All the judgments beginning today with the judgment seat of Christ have to do with the future. In a sense, you might say they're prophetic. They're things we know are going to come to pass. And so after the church is raptured to heaven, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, the church is believers. After the church is raptured to heaven, we as believers will take part in what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. This judgment takes place in heaven. Okay, it takes place in heaven. To be there, to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, you must already be a Christian, or else you're not going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. There's an awful judgment awaiting you in the future, one final judgment. But I wanted to show this to you on a prophetic timeline. If you look at the chart that we have up here, we are living today in the church age, all right? That's from Pentecost. And when will it end? We don't know when it will end. We, we know it ends at the rapture, but we don't know when the rapture is. So we don't know when the church age will end. The rapture, even in the days of the apostles, they were taught and were teaching that the return of Christ at the rapture was an imminent event. That means it could take place at any moment. We know it takes place before the seven-year tribulation. Now watch if you look up on the chart. Here's the church age. You might say, okay, then well, where are we on this scale? Where would we be today? Well, I'll give you my opinion, and I think scriptures really bear this out. Very few people would disagree with this. And if they disagree, they're wrong. But anyways, that's another story. <laughs> we are towards the very end of the church age. You might say, how do you know that? Because signs for the tribulation are all over the planet. And these are things that have never taken place until recent times. And these are things that have to be in place for the seven-year tribulation period to begin. And so we know we're getting close to that. And if Jesus is coming back before that takes place, and I think scriptures are clear that he is, then listen, if the tribulation is close the rapture is even closer. So what happens? When the church age ends, we are going to be taken up at the rapture of the church to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But then we will stand here in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ takes place after the rapture of the church. We'll be referring to this, obviously, because the other messages are going to be prophetic. We'll be coming back to this chart. But let's go ahead over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. As I mentioned, if you're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, remember it takes place in heaven, then you must be saved. You have to be already a believer. And the Bible is clear on how we are saved. It says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved. Now, grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor. 
Grace is not something we deserve. It's God doing something for us that we in no way deserve. It is him simply acting out of his nature and doing something for us simply because he wants to do that for us. We're not doing anything for him to say, oh, okay, I'll do that. No, God provides salvation as a gift of his grace. And it says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and we know it's faith in Jesus Christ, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is the gift of God. Now, you have Calvinists today who say, well, faith is the gift of God. Well, everything we get from God is the gift. We understand that. But in the context here, it does not modify faith. It modifies gift. It points back, for by grace are you saved. The gift of God is our salvation, Okay, and we know that from Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is not faith. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy for God to save you. God commended his love towards us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. We come just, you know, we sing the song just as I am. There are a lot of churches, they'll sing the song just as I am, and then they throw everything but the kitchen sink in that we have to do. No, it's a good song, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, I come. Yeah, that's salvation. When you understand there's nothing you can do to save yourself, you are helplessly, hopelessly lost, and instead you put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ that he has paid for your sins on the cross and risen from the dead, you put your faith in him to save you, that's when you receive salvation and he gives you everlasting life. We love to illustrate it this way. If this hand were to represent you and me and my wallet, our sin, we're all sinners. This is how we are conceived. The Bible says we're conceived in sin. Conception's not a sin, but when a baby is conceived, he's a sinner or she's a sinner. God loves us. He hates our sin, but he loves us. See, sin separates us from God. You can't go to heaven with your sin. Not even one sin. You know, you hear people say, well, that person's awful, man alive. They'll never make it to heaven. Anybody who would say that believes that you get there by behavior, by your good works. No, you're not saved by works. There's nothing we could do to save ourselves. We're separated from God. And God says, because we've sinned, that sin has to be punished. It has to be paid for. There's a penalty for that. And the Bible says it's death. That's separation from God forever in a literal lake of fire. That's the final destiny of the lost. God doesn't want anybody to go there. Now, no amount of good works will take away sin because good works are not the payment for sin. It's death. Death is the only payment. So good works won't do it. And as we've just seen in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves, God loving us so much, he does not want us to be separated from him in hell. So he himself took on flesh God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if this hand were to represent him, the sinless Son of God, Jesus went to the cross, and when he did, he died for our sins. He died for your sins. 
He died for my sins, making the complete payment, and then he came back from the dead. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus Christ has paid for all your sins, past, present, and future, what does that leave you to pay for? Nothing. Why? It's all been paid for already. All he's asking you to do is believe in him that he did that for you. And when you do, that's what faith is. When you do, the moment you do, he gives you everlasting life and you are saved by the grace of God. Friend, look, the wages of sin is death. Now, if you reject the payment Christ made, then you'll be responsible for this and you'll be lost forever. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. That's what he said. But when you trust Christ, all your sin is taken care of, okay? If all your sin is taken care of, then what's to keep you out of heaven? There's nothing to keep you out of heaven. What is there to send you to hell? There's nothing to send you to hell because your sin's been taken care of in Christ. Isn't that good news? Now, every person who puts their faith in Christ, God gives them everlasting life. He'll never lose them. He'll never cast them out. But what about now the life we live? Does God want us to live a godly life? Well, the answer to that is absolutely he does. But whether you succeed or fail in that, whether you do a good job or a bad job in that, has no bearing on whether you'll go to heaven. What it has bearing on is your reward and the blessing you'll receive when you get there. And it also has bearing on the results in your life on the here and now, because we do reap what we sow. And so it says in Ephesians 2, we've seen verses 8 and 9, but look at verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship. Now that word workmanship means his product, the thing that he made. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is why you're born again. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we, you notice what it says, the key word, should walk in them. It doesn't say you must walk in them. Because if you have to, then you're saying you have to earn it by your good works. If you're saying you will walk in them, well, that's false teaching of Calvinism. Because listen, there's not any Christian who's ever lived who 100% walked in the good works God wants them to. But God says we still have a responsibility in no ways determine where you're going when you die, but we have a responsibility. God wants his children to live like they're children of God. And that's what verse 10 is about. And so we should. Should is the only word that goes with the fact of grace, grace being free. We should walk in them. So we are secure in Christ no matter what we do. Now that alarms people to hear that. It's what the Bible teaches. If you have everlasting life, you have everlasting life. If you can do something to stop it, you are never saved to begin with. We are secure in Christ no matter what we do. All of our sin was taken care of at the cross. Everlasting life is everlasting, and we need to understand it. But yet, the Bible says we are still accountable as believers for how we live our lives. Because it doesn't determine your destiny it determines your reward or lack of reward. That's what it determines. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone as Savior. Every believer is accountable to God for how he or she responds to the salvation God has given them. 
We are responsible for how we respond to the gift that we have. I want you to turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And folks, I want to tell you that Christians are all over the map on this concept of the judgment seat of Christ. I think it's incredibly vital for us to approach the scriptures objectively, non-emotionally. We don't make up our concept of the judgment seat of Christ and then force it on scripture. We let the Bible define it. We let the Bible explain it. And this is very important. And I'm sure in the next uh, two weeks, I'm going to say some things that there are some people who will end up hearing it who will say, well, I don't like that. Well, I can't believe that. Or I don't go along with that. It's just like last week. How could anybody object to my message last week? I don't know. But sure enough, there they were. They came out of the weeds, okay? You know, you don't have to confess your sin as a Christian and all this kind of stuff and all these different things. And it's like, hey, get a life, okay? This is ridiculous. The Bible says you do, and you're saying you don't. Well, who am I going to believe? I'm not going to believe you. I'm going to believe God, right? Same thing with the judgment seat of Christ. See, there are some Christians, some, and I'm not saying who, because I don't know. Only God knows the heart. There are some Christians who do not like the idea of being saved by grace and yet having a responsibility to live a godly life as a believer. They don't like that idea. They just like the first part. I'm saved by grace. I have eternal security. I know I'm going to heaven. I can't ever be lost. Woohoo! Now it's time to party. Well, if it's a godly party, that's okay. Do that occasionally. Okay, if sweet fellowship like a Sunday dinner here at church like we had last week. Was that last week? I say, can't you remember? No. <laughs> at least I know we had it recently, right? You know as well as I do. Things accelerate, right? As time goes on, years go by like months and months go by like weeks and the weeks go by like days. Every time I turn around, it's Sunday. And I'm not complaining because I love our church. Okay, this is a gift. This is a treat to be here. But we are accountable. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, it says, Wherefore we labor... The word labor, you can look it up, it means to toil, to work hard, to sweat is the idea, okay? Hard work is the idea. What a minute, wait a minute, I don't believe Christians aren't supposed to, that's legalism. God said it. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Now the word accepted means well-pleasing to him. We labor as believers People who are saved by grace, who have eternal security, we labor faithfully so that we may be well-pleasing to him. Years ago, when we first started our church, one of the, the leaders that we had, he just had a cow, the idea of, what do you mean I have to please God? I don't have to please God with the way I live my life. That's what it says. We're supposed to. No, it doesn't change your destiny. But we're going to give an account for how we live as believers. For we must all appear for, because, you notice, look what it says. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted or well-pleasing of him. Because, that's what for means. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's writing to Christians. 
We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. It's what it says, good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. You notice that verses 10 and 11. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but the way I approach the Bible is I believe what it says, right? When you come over something you don't like, you don't find a clever way to discount it. You bow the knee and say, Lord, help me understand it. And by your grace, help me apply this to my life. That is the way of victory in a Christian life. These verses stand on their own. We will receive according to what we have done, whether it be good or bad. Now that's interesting, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I encourage you to do some of your own study on this. This is kind of interesting because we, without getting into a lot of detail on this, we believe there's two major text streams in Scripture. There's the text stream, in other words, where the Bible came from. As time goes on, which translations relate to whatever ones. There's the text stream of the King James Version. Then there's the text stream of most of your, not all, but most of your modern versions based on and connected with Westcott and Hort. And they call it the eclectic text, okay, or the Westcott and Hort text. King James would be the received text or the textus receptus, all right? Um, so many people, they look at verse 10, it says, whether it be good or bad. And they say, well, the word bad doesn't mean bad. Now, this is interesting. Listen, you might say, well, all the Bibles say the same thing. Actually, they don't. The Westcott and Hort text stream, it's a different Greek word for the word bad. That word means worthless. And so people translate that word bad as worthless because that's the Bible they're using. However, the Greek word in the King James, or what's behind in the King James text, the Textus Receptus, the word bad means, it can mean worthless, but the word bad means bad. And almost every time it's used in the King James, it's translated as evil. Evil. Now, again, we don't approach God's word and say, well, I don't, that troubles me. I'm going to change it. <laughs> You're a liberal then, right? No, we accept it and we say, okay, you know what? There is some sort of accountability going on here. Now, let me make some things clear as we go through. And this is important. And this is why I wanted to spend two weeks on this. I wanted to get this into one week. I could not do it because the, we have important things to see on this. Notice it says that we shall all appear. The word appear does not mean just to show up. It's a very strong word. Vine's expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words. The word appear, it means to be manifested. In a scriptural sense of the word is more than to appear. A person may appear in a false guise or without a disclosure of what he truly is. To be manifested is to be revealed in one's true character. That is the idea of appearing here. In other words, we appear as we are is what it is. While it is true that we will never be condemned by the Lord because our sins are paid for once and for all, it is not true that we are not accountable for the lives we live. Now, let me say this. I do not believe 
Now, I know there's variations on this. I don't believe that Christians are punished at the judgment seat of Christ because our punishment was taken care of at Calvary. Remember the first judgment was the, the judgment of the sins of man at Calvary. When you accept the payment Christ made for your sin, you don't have to pay for your sins again. You're not going to be punished. There's no such thing as purgatory and so on and so forth. However, there is an accountability in answering, literally, that's what the Bible teaches, at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I'm not here, up here to tell you I understand every detail of how everything is going to go. I just know what the Bible says, and I've got a responsibility to tell you. The judgment seat, and this is another thing where people hijack this because of their theological bent. And it's unfortunate because I think they're messing things up. The judgment seat is also called the Bema seat. And it was a place where authority would hand down judgments and rewards. Listen, it is used both ways in the New Testament. Now, the reason I say that is because many people who teach about the judgment seat of Christ, they only focus on the reward part. And they talk about, you know, these people would run these Olympic races and and the Isthmus games, which were popular in Corinth and so forth. And they would run these. And then if you won, you would go before the emperor and he would be on the bema. And what would he do? He would reward you. Amen. I, that's what, Yes. That is what took place. But the same judgment seat would also judge, in a negative sense, people. Let's not misunderstand this issue. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, it says in Matthew 27, 19, the raised platform or bench occupied by Pontius Pilate while he was deliberating the accusations made against Jesus and the sentence he would pronounce in connection with Jesus' case. That is called the judgment. That's the bema. Same exact word. According to Acts 18.12, Paul the apostle was brought before the judgment seat in Corinth. So it isn't just the place where you get a reward or a crown. And by the way, we're going to cover more of that next week. And that's a wonderful thing. And it's a glorious thing. So this is not like uh, gloom. It's just being accurate with scripture. So let's break this down. First is this. It is a time of judgment to determine our reward and the loss of reward that we could have had. That is what it's about. And I think that's where the accountability comes in. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment to determine our reward for our faithfulness or our lack of reward or loss of reward, which would be loss of what we could have had if we would have been faithful. It's not a punishment issue. The punishment was taken care of at Calvary. It's an accountability though. If you will, we will answer for ourselves. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in verse... Five. Now remember, this only applies to those who are saved forever who are going to be in heaven. Do you understand that? It says nothing to do with whether you're going to go to heaven or not. It only has to do with those who are already on their way to heaven. And it affects the way we live our lives. Number one, it is a time of judgment to determine our reward and loss of reward that we could have had. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. Who then is Paul? Paul's writing. 
Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. I don't like that idea of Christians having to work. Well, you don't like what God has to say. Just look up to your heavenly father and says, I don't like what you've got to say to me. Because that's essentially what it comes down to. So it is a time, as we've seen, a judgment to determine our reward or loss of reward. But secondly, it is personal. Do you see it? Do you catch that in verse 8? His own reward according to his own labor? I'm responsible for myself. I will answer for myself. I will not answer for my family. I will not answer for my friends. I will not answer for you. I am going to answer for me. Have I been faithful with the responsibilities God has given me as a believer? Not everyone will receive the same. Notice, every man, his own reward according to his own labor. The issue here is reward in heaven. Again, it's not heaven itself. It's reward in heaven. Turn with me to Romans chapter 14. As you're turning there, you might be thinking, I didn't know there's so many verses on this. There's lots of verses on this. Romans 14, we'll begin in verse 10. This is all under, it is personal. Let me say this. Over the years, one of the things, and this, this may sound a little unusual to you, but I think you will appreciate it if you wrap your mind around it. Over the years, one of the things that God has taught me that has been a tremendous encouragement in my life, a release point, a place of peace, of contentment, is that everyone will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And I say, pastor, why is that such a big deal to you? Because folks, listen, when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, we as believers are going to give an account for ourselves. And what am I getting at? Here's what I'm getting at. Over the years, we suffer persecution. We suffer misrepresentation. We suffer at the hands of big mouth gossips. We suffer at people who want to twist our words or stab us in the back or tell lies about us. We've had people, unbelievable over the years, some of the things that have been said about me, about the elders, about our church and all this stuff, none of it being true. But, you know, they have to justify themselves. And these are Christians who say these things. I'd say, what are you getting at? Here's what I'm getting at. I'm not going to let it bother me. You know why? Every man will give account of himself to God. And I'm just going to let the Lord take care of it. Because I'll be honest with you, I may want to make a judgment. And if I make that judgment, I may not really know the intricacies or the depths of the details and all that. And I may not get a judgment right. God gets every judgment right. Every one of them. And it's like, you know what, Lord? I'm not going to let this bother me. I'm just going to let you take care of it. I'm only going to be concerned about me doing the right thing and encouraging others to do the right thing and let the Lord take care of it. Romans 14, 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? 
For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us, I love the way we have it in our Bibles, not everyone, every one. Do you see what I'm saying? Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Don't you think we've got enough to be concerned about with ourselves? Why in the world are we so worried about, I hope they get theirs one day, this kind of an attitude? Listen, just let the Lord take care of it. We will give an account, and this word account, it means a verbal answer, a verbal answer to God for how we've lived our lives since we got saved. And this is all at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know about you, this is a sobering reality. You know, I believe this, I've said it many times. I think the judgment seat of Christ for most Christians will be a mixed bag. I think it will be a very sobering time, and in other ways, it's going to be a very joyous time. And I'll explain more about that next week. But the late Bible teacher, he was a great Bible teacher, M.R. Dehan, he said this. He said, quote, and I love this because this is where things are at, folks, and this was written decades and decades ago. He said, we realize that this neglected truth is one which is not welcome among believers. We love to hear about the security we have in Christ and all the graces which he has bestowed upon us and all the privileges which are ours as members of the family of God. But too often we are loath to assume the responsibilities which all of this sonship implies. There is no question that if the average believer in the average church could be more conscious of the fact that every act and every moment and every talent which he possesses is to pass before the judgment seat of Christ, an end would be made to much of the worldliness and sinfulness and carelessness on the part of believers, unquote. It's a powerful statement. I only have one word to say to it. Amen. It is true. Number three, the judgment seat of Christ is based on our faithfulness and our motives. Our faithfulness and our motives. Our works are judged. Our works are judged. You know, people say, well, you know, I don't, uh, works, you start talking about works, that's just all legalism. That's legalism. You know, that's the L word. That's legalism. Well, the judgment seat of Christ, that is the issue at the judgment seat of Christ, is our works. That's what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians, turn there with me, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Those of us who are saved, God requires us to be faithful, not to get into heaven. We have that. That's everlasting life. But to be an honorable servant, to be one who's going to be rewarded generously at the judgment seat of Christ, one who will not be ashamed before Christ that is coming. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So we see this issue of faithfulness and motives. Number one, faithfulness, okay? Those who have labored more faithfully with the time they had will be rewarded more. This is simply a matter of sowing and reaping. It's just a matter of fact. Christian who, let's say for an example, they live their life and 
Occasionally, you know, they're kind of like a, I call them a, they're a whale Christians. Have you ever heard of whale Christians before? You don't hear, you don't see them, you don't hear about them. It just every occasion, occasionally it's like, they make an appearance, then down they go. And they're underwater. You never see them again for months on end. And all of a sudden, there they always show up. And down, that's a whale Christian. Do you think a whale Christian is going to get the same reward as somebody who's a committed member of the church who's laboring for Christ? No. It's a matter of faithfulness. Those who are more faithful, more reward. But not only that, it goes even deeper. It also has to do with our motives for why we're doing what we're doing. Why did we do what we did as Christians? Did we do it to glorify God or did we do it to glorify self? Motives is an issue at the judgment seat of Christ. Can I tell you this, folks? There are Christians who are going to get very little as far as reward at the judgment seat of Christ because they're doing it like the Pharisees. They're doing it to be seen of men, to get the praise of men. That has to do with motive. 1 Corinthians 4 continued, verse 3, But with me, Paul says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you. They were very judgmental towards him. Or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. Now, there's a context to this. It's the judgment seat of Christ. For I know nothing of myself. In other words, here's what he's saying. I have a hard time judging myself because I can't even discern my motives sometimes of why I do what I do and so on and so forth. That's what he's getting at. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, here we go, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest, make known the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. You look at verse 5. Doesn't that kind of go along with 2 Corinthians 5.10 where it talks about good or bad? Hidden things of darkness, that doesn't sound like something really encouraging, does it? See, I believe this. I believe if we as Christians, let's say we sin, I say, is every sin I've ever done going to come up at the judgment seat of Christ? I don't believe that. I know this, when we sin as Christians, first thing we should do is confess that to God. Confess it to God right there. See it as he does, agree with him on it. 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We whole message on this last week, right? The believer's self-judgment. And I believe when we do that, that thing, is, that thing never is going to be an issue at the judgment seat of Christ. I just don't think it's going to be there. Now, again, I don't have all the answers, but I'm trying to put this together just like everybody else. And there's a lot you can put together if you're honest with Scripture. But I do believe this, there are some things that will come up and no, they won't be punished, but they will come up at the judgment seat of Christ. I think that's the hidden things of darkness. And God will make manifest the counsel of the heart. Why did you do what you did? Let me say this, dear friend, if you as a believer, if you do something for Christ and somebody doesn't publicly recognize you or slap you on the back in a friendly way, and shake your hand and profusely thank you for what you did. If they don't do that and you get mad, shows your motive. We should be doing all we do to the glory of God. Now, listen, I believe in doing that. We all need encouragement and we need to encourage each other. 
and thank people for using their gifts and their talents for Christ. I think that's good. But if you don't get the credit for that, are you good with it? Tells you your motive. If you're good with it because you're doing it for Christ, he'll take care of the reward one day. He'll take care of it. This judgment seat of Christ, clearly there is a sobering accountability in the future that we as believers must face. But folks, listen, there's also wonderful things that are going to be happening at the judgment seat of Christ. Let me just give you just a hint of one of them, and we're going to spend more time on this next week. God is the one who keeps the records, and every single thing you've done since you've been saved that you've done for Christ for his glory, you're going to be rewarded for that. It could be something as simple as a prayer, a word of encouragement, a note to somebody, a blessing you shared with somebody, you name it. You might say, I'm getting older. I can't remember what I was doing 10 years ago. I'm, you know, the things that I did, this and that. Don't worry about it. God keeps the records and his records are perfect. And he knows what you did, and he knows why you did it. If it was done for Jesus Christ, you'll be rewarded for that. I said more about that than I wanted to. But you know what? It's important to understand it. It's all good because it comes from God. Today, if you happen to be here, maybe you've never understood this. And maybe you've always thought your good works that you do, that's going to help you get into heaven. It's not going to help you, friend. You can't get to heaven by your good works. That is why Jesus came, because we couldn't save ourselves. But if you will put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, that he's paid for all your sins, he'll give you eternal life as a gift. And let me say this. Once you've trusted Christ as Savior, you're born again. And whether you live a successful Christian life or whether you bomb out and do a very poor job of it, It does not change the fact that if you've trusted Christ, you'll go to heaven because all your sins have been taken care of. So trust him as your savior today. Would you do that? Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.